Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us, our old buddy Greg Pallas, the investigative journalist, author, filmmaker. His most recent work, The Best Democracy Money Can Buy, uh, gregpallas.com. Of course, the website, Greg underscore Pallas, is his Twitter handle. And Greg, welcome back. Glad to be with you, Tom. And I understand that you've got a gig now. You're working with Stacey Abrams, and she's got this extraordinary effort, both a federal lawsuit and, and also an organization that she's started or she's affiliated with. You want to tell us about all this? Yes, yeah, Stacey Abrams uh, decided to not run for Senate. She could have probably had an easy uh, shot for the Senate seat because she's so committed to the issue of of ending vote suppression, which is the fancy word for stealing your vote if you're a, a voter of color. And her organization that she found is called Fair Fight. Right now it's concentrated only in Georgia. And she has just uh, uh, hired, her, her organization lawyers have hired my entire expert team at the Palace Investigative Fund to go through the list of, of every voter that has been purged in Georgia and determine how many were removed illegally. Now, this came out of the work that I was reporting for you, Tom, uh, during the 2018 election. Stacey Abrams, the first black woman in American history to run for governor against Brian Kemp, who was also Secretary of State, the Persian General of uh, Georgia. And Kemp removed over half a million voters. I hired a bunch of Silicon Valley experts to go name by name, not a statistical sample, but name by name, and we found that at minimum we could identify 340,134 people by name and address illegally removed by Brian Kemp, Secretary of State. That's how he won by a few thousand votes for governor of Georgia. And what I'm very concerned about, what uh, Stacey Abrams is concerned about, She's trying to reverse that law, get those people back on the rolls in Georgia. And now I am going to be taking my team, uh, depending on resources. And Stacey Abrams' help is, frankly, very helpful to us financially. But we're still on our own having to take on, uh, we're relieved of the Georgia cost. But now we're going into Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, North Carolina, and as many states as we can, uh, as our resources allow and we'll be doing the same process, name-by-name name review of the purge list. Fourteen million people were purged from the voter rolls in the last two years, according to the Brennan Senator. Whoa. Fourteen million. Whoa. And in fact, I saw a story maybe a month or so ago, and I, I immediately thought of you and probably should have called you up, that said that Brian Kemp was planning to purge another couple hundred thousand people off the voting rolls in Georgia. Am I remembering right, or was I mixing up the states? <laughs> These people have no shame. We caught them. We said, here are the names. Just so you know, the Palace Investigative Fund, my group, actually filed a lawsuit against Brian Kemp to get the names. He didn't, you know, they do this in the dark, you know. They don't want to give you the names and the reasons why people are purged. Oh, they say things, you know, I hear him on... uh, on the radio and TV saying, uh, oh, well, this is the law, you know, if people don't vote or we send them a postcard and they don't return it, uh, we remove them. Well, he can only remove people. Now, here's the trick. He's allowed to move people who've left the state. That's what he claims they did. They left the state and left their county. And we literally found out where every single person lives right now. He didn't even check 
the state income tax. He said people left the state, but they're still paying Georgia income taxes. Why is that? They're paying property taxes. They're getting, by the way, we use 200 databases. Here's the bad news, Tom. We know whether you had pizza last Thursday, where it was delivered. So we know where you're getting your pizza, where you're downloading your porn, et cetera. It's pretty amazing what's available if you're looking for it, isn't it? Yeah, there's experts, and and we needed people with special licenses that are allowed to to do this. Mm-hmm. So we're going to take it on the road to other states. That's the other thing that. Uh, so you know, I'm turning over. I turned over all our files and material and team to Stacey Abrams in Georgia, but now I have to go. Unfortunately, it's not the only state because Georgia was the test ground in 2018, right. which followed, just so you know, a Supreme Court decision in June of 2018, which gave Brian Kemp a kind of rough okay to go ahead and do this type of purging in Ohio and Georgia, and it's spreading to about 20 states. Yeah, all red states, I assume. They're all swing states controlled by red GOP. So in other words, like you take a state like um like Wisconsin, where you have the uh, state legislature's Republican. Actually, the state board of, uh, board of Elections in Wisconsin is resisting removing people, and they're being sued by a right-wing think tank. Uh, we're going to be able to help the state by giving them the actual evidence to prove that the purges that this right-wing group, which is suing to force the purges, that they're dead wrong. We all know Wisconsin is once again a swing state. Michigan's a swing state. Pennsylvania, Arizona, et cetera. So right. Even uh, Texas we're taking is the, the new purge method and trying to stop it. That's all. Yeah. And you're doing this just with uh, donations that people make at gregpalace.com? I mean, you said the Pal- Palace Investigative Fund. I don't know how that works. Yes, I'm a 501c3 nonpartisan nonprofit organization, as is Stacey Abrams' Fair Fight. And uh, like I say, they've relieved all our financial burdens in Georgia where we were working. God bless them. Uh, bless uh, Stacey Abrams. Thank you. Thank you. And it's, in fact, giving us a little extra so that we can start moving to other states. With, but frankly, I am kind of begging people for money at the Palace Investigative Fund. Not, you know, I'm sorry for this commercial, but I kind of have to to get this work done. No, I get it. If and you I've, want I... to make a, a Go ahead. You know, tax-deductible donation at the gregpalace.com, it will take you there to the foundations page right. where we are going to be doing, you know, look, vote, you know, it, we're not here to help the Democratic Party. We are here to help voters stay on the rolls who've been wrongly removed. Like uh, Stacey Abrams always cites the woman that we found on our list, 92-year-old Christine Ford, Martin Luther King's cousin. So we were there at the polling station when they threw her out, 92 years old. Her name was vanished from the voter rolls. She was on that Brian Kemp hit list. And that's the type of people that they are removing. Right, right. Uh, principally people of color. It's, Young people. Yeah, right. and what's so amazing is that, you know, you are having to ask people, average people, to, you know, cough up 10 bucks to help out. But yeah. the group that has been promulgating these radical and restrictive voter laws that facilitate this kind of voter suppression, uh, which is exactly what it is. I mean, this is a, a voter yeah. suppression. Alec is funded by yeah. some of the biggest billionaires in America. I mean, oh, absolutely. The, the other, and, yes. And we got the Manhattan Institute. We have these new right wing law firms, uh, what they, they call them public interest law firms, but they're out there literally uh, demanding that states remove people from the voter rolls. And I know everyone's going to ask me, where's the Democratic Party? Don't ask. I don't know. I, you know, I've been hunting for them. I'm an investigative reporter. I will find them. But they seem to be missing an action on this one. Yeah. Stacey Abrams, that's why she's taken this on as a nonpartisan matter. And it is. We, you know, democracy is not partisan. We just, you know, but at this moment, there's no question that the GOP donors have put the big money behind removing. And like I say, not just voters of color. We're, what we're finding is that the big group being hit is young people. Check your registration right now. Oh, if you live in a college town or you're going to college, odds are the Republicans are after you. You know, Absolutely. to remove your name. Yeah. Okay. Greg Palast, the best democracy money can buy is his uh, latest movie, gregpalast.com, G-R-E-G-P-A-L-A-S-T.com, the website. Thanks, Greg. You're the best, Tom. Thanks. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Nina in Charlotte, North Carolina. Hey, Nina, what's up? Hi, thank you so much for taking my call. I just want to say I love your show. And I just wanted to maybe give you something. You may have already thought about it. Food for thought. Maybe I'm worrying for nothing, but... 
You know how Elizabeth Warren, part of her messaging for her campaign, which I love so much because I've been waiting for this to happen for a long time, to enforce our antitrust laws. Mm -hmm. And there are obviously people in the business world that don't seem to like that. And the one that I hear about the most often is Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. I'm really concerned about that because, you know, I think he was part of getting information or metadata to Cambridge Analytica. Yep. And, you know, he has already said he will fight, so he does not want, (laughs) I don't think he wants her to win. And my concern is he has so much massive control, and they have been nowhere near transparent like they should be. I mean, every time we turn around, there's a breach. And I'm afraid that they might actually, I mean, I'm not saying they would manipulate something, but they certainly have the means to do so. Yeah, Yeah, they do. And it really concerns me because Bernie, I think, you know, that's uh, something he has talked about, too. Yeah, I, I, you know, and, and here on this program, I started reporting. Uh, we had Judd Legamon talking about some of the stuff that Facebook is up to, and I was reporting about how Mark Zuckerberg said uh, words to the effect of Elizabeth Warren represents an existential threat. And then, what does Facebook do? They cancel my personal account. Good riddance, right? But it's <sighs> it's uh, you know this this company is behaving in a way that frankly should concern us all in my opinion nina i got it really does i've got to move along but thank you very much for the call i is spot on well said brent in kansas city missouri hey brent what's up i was calling because greg class was talking about people being kicked off of voter rolls and he asked a question which was the democratic party where are they on this my whole adult voting life, minus the last couple of years, I lived in Washington State, and if I didn't get a message from the Bernie Sanders campaign on Facebook to check and see if I had been kicked off the voter rolls, I wouldn't have known I was kicked off the voter rolls. So uh, the answer to that question, I think, is they're kind of complicit in it, too. The Democratic Party, they're... Oh. they're you know, the, yeah, they're doing. I'm, I'm with you, Brent. In that, I would say that they're they're not doing anything close to enough about this. I mean, if if the Republican Party, if Democrats had figured out a way to prevent Republicans from voting, the Republican Party would be screaming. You know, they would be hanging over bridges with giant signs. They would they would be flying blimps through the sky. They would be buying advertising. They would be absolutely hysterical. And the Democrats are not, and they should be. PJ in Burnham, Illinois. Hey, PJ, what's up? Thanks for watching Free Speech. Uh, I was looking at the BBC, and apparently Russia has forced Apple to list Crimea and cities that they stole from Ukraine as Russian territory. Well, I think that it is now... I mean, there was a referendum. On the the Google Maps. Right, there there, there was a referendum... And the majority of the people in Crimea voted to be with Russia. Am I remembering that wrong? Probably too long. Stalin transported all, all of the non-Russians out, out of that area and sent them to the steps where they started. Oh, no, I, I get how it all came about. And, you know, mm-hmm. and there's a giant military, you know, Russian military base there. And the cream of the crop of the Russian Navy, I believe it is, retires there because it's a beautiful climate. It's, you know, it's kind of like retiring to Florida here in the United States. But it may well be that, and frankly, I don't know. I don't know if the international community has recognized that Crimea as part of Russia rather than part of Ukraine or not. Certainly the Donbass, you know, the eastern part of Ukraine, the rest of the eastern part of Ukraine is contested and the the international consensus is that's part of Ukraine, that's not part of Russia, even though there's a lot of Russians living there too, for the same reasons that you were talking about. And, and, you know, during the Soviet times, a lot of Russians were moved into that area. But I don't know if we should be outraged with Google or not, frankly. I mean, maybe we should be, you know. It's Apple. Or Apple. Apple, okay, Apple. Um, Apple has yeah. done this. Okay. Uh, you know, I'll, have, I'll have to check it out. Thanks a lot, uh, PJ. I appreciate the call. Frank in Woodland, California. Hey, Frank, what's on your mind today? Hey, pretty good, Tom, and uh, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Uh, before I give you my point, I just wanted to mention, remember Green Acres uh, back in the day, long time ago, the TV show? Yeah. Every time... And this is not disparaging. Every time I see the president, I think to myself, remember Mr. Haney used to always sell everything he could think of to. Yeah, to the city slickers. Yeah. Yeah. So I swear, every time I look at a guy, I go, what would that guy be? And of course, 
you know the answer. Yeah. Anyway, regarding the Fox personality, I was kind of a little bit. First thing I say, there's always going to be a Clarence Thomas. And so you're talking about Gianna Caldwell? Absolutely. And I'm, I'm a black guy. I'm African-American descent. And I mean, I could appreciate the fact that if I worked every day in free speech television at the, at the studio, I'm sure I'm not going to be pushing Fox talking points. And I say that with all due respect. And I mean, he's been in that bubble for quite some time. And I just feel that like it's almost it's greater than subliminal advertising. It's like you're yeah. being constantly inundated, inundated. Frank, the sales pitch, and I know Gianno. I mean, I, I know him personally. I got to know him when we were in Washington, D.C. He was a regular on my TV show and we met socially. And he's a really decent guy. And there is this narrative, and my father used to believe this narrative, so I'm very familiar with it. My dad died a Republican. That if you give people things, that they become dependent upon you. And if you want people to stand on their own two feet and claim control of their own lives and all those things that we think of as noble things, you have to basically poke them a little bit to get them there. And it makes sense, but my experience through life is that people are more likely to climb the ladder of success if they are given a lift, you know, if they're given a net that holds them. And the, and the evidence of this is that most of the people who are successful are people who started out in the upper middle class. I mean, you know, really successful. And so that kind of proves it, in my opinion. But this conservative narrative that Gianno has bought into, and, and I think probably most Republicans have, and I think Gianno believes it, I think for some Republicans it's just an excuse, basically, is that we have to deprive people of health care, otherwise they won't try to get a job. We have to deprive them of food stamps, otherwise they'll never, they'll never go out and work, they'll never be productive, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, that's what's going well, on, I think. I leave this last point. Look at the Marshall Plan. Look at Japan. Yep. Look at <laughs> look at the GI Bill. And look at the GI Bill. <laughs> my yeah. gosh. So anyway, that's my point. And I'm fine talking to you. Have a great day. Okay. Bye. Thanks a lot, Frank. Yeah, Frank is absolutely right. You know, helping people be successful is a whole lot more effective and efficient way to produce success with people than punishing them for not being successful. But you know, the Republicans are into punishing. The Democrats are into helping, bottom line. John in Breckenridge, Michigan. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. A couple comments I want to make was something that leads up to a question. Uh, you're the, probably the only person that I've heard on the radio or even on TV say that PBS has kind of lost their soul when they started going commercial. In my opinion, they lost their soul. They sold themselves out. Well, they, I think it's a challenge, to, John. I think it, it, bigger than that is that they've started bringing these right-wing think tanks in to regularly comment on things. John, I'm sorry to cut you off, but thank you. Well said on all points. Jeff in Portland, Oregon. John Dean famously said to Nixon that Watergate was a cancer growing on the presidency. Yeah. I would update that to say that the Trump administration is a cancer growing on our democracy and the rule of law. I would agree with that. So. But the thing I was going to ask that, we talk about it on your show, but it, it isn't getting too much national coverage. And I think it's the biggest elephant in the room when it comes to election meddling. And that's the fundamental insecurity of, our, of voting electronically. I was listening to a segment on Democracy Now! recently, Tom. They were interviewing the Secretary of State for Colorado. In Colorado, they mail out ballots to everybody. But if you want to show up on Election Day, and vote at a polling place, you can also do that. So they've really increased their voter turnout. I think it's one of the highest in the nation. So you don't have to ask for an absentee ballot or do any kind of song and dance. You auto, if you're a registered voter, you automatically get a ballot by mail in, in Colorado now. Exactly. I did not and, know that. Then, that's, but, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, you also have the option if you want to vote the old fashioned way and show up at a polling place on Election Day, you can do it that way, too. Right. But not only not only does getting a ballot out to everybody tremendously increase voter accessibility and turnout, but, you know, having the hand marked paper ballots, which we talk about all the time on your show. Mm -hmm. I think that would drastically increase the election integrity. And as you pointed out, we need to hand count. You, you point this out a lot. We need to hand count these paper ballots, not run them through scanning machines either. Yeah. And in Colorado, uh, what are the proportions of people who are mailing ballots in versus showing up at the polls now that they've changed this? 
I don't know if that question was asked, and, uh, and if it was, I don't remember. Yeah. But that would be fascinating to find out, you know, if, if most people are suddenly shifting to vote by mail. I mean, living here in Oregon, it's just it's so convenient. Uh, when I lived in D.C., I had to go stand in line and, you know, go find the, the precinct. And the, uh, it was a local school, a whole song and dance. And now it's just, hey, I get this thing in the mail. I, you know, I read the voter guide. I fill it out. I mail it back in. Instant. Yeah. Easy. It really lets people vote in an informed way. As you say, you can study the, yeah. the ballot. Is and, Colorado uh, the only state that does that, to the best of your knowledge, Jeff? To the best of my knowledge, it is, Tom. And, and you know, it might be a little more palatable to present on a national level because you're, you're still giving people that option of, a, of the polling place if, if that's what they prefer sure. to do. Yeah, because, you so. know, for some, for some people, it's, that's a social event. And uh, Antwerp has become one. Jeff, thank you for the call. Great to hear from you. With all the problems unfolding for the Fed and central banks, you may be asking some very important questions. How close are we to the next economic collapse? What will it look like just before the crash? And how can I protect my investments and my retirement? There are a few people better suited to answer these questions than ITM Trading's chief market analyst, Lynette Zhang. Her fact-based research on the markets, currencies, and economy is second to none, and her videos have prepared people for almost every major downfall in the U.S. economy this year. If you haven't heard of Lynette Zhang and ITM Trading, I highly recommend looking them up. They're pioneers in economic education, and they're experts at creating strategies to protect you against the next inevitable crisis. If you're looking to protect your wealth or just hedge against the most volatile economy since 2007, go to youtube.com slash itmtrading. I recommend learning as much as you can before the next crisis hits, so you can make the most educated choices while there's still time. That's youtube.com slash itmtrading. It's the Tom Harbin University Book Club. Today we're reading from Minority Leader, How to Lead from the Outside and Make Real Change by Stacey Abrams. This is from Chapter One. I sit in the living room, a cozy space, warm in the early summer. I'm perched on the edge of a sofa next to Valerie, the home's owner, a lovely black woman in her late 40s. Across from us, seated close together on a wide settee met for one, are her two children, a son and a daughter. Politicians rarely visit their streets, which are nestled in a poorer community in South Georgia. Valerie beams with pride that both her children are headed to college in the fall. David, 17, plans to study criminology. Maya, 18, her belly round with her first child, intends to become a middle school teacher. Both newly graduated from high school, Maya will give birth in mere weeks and begin college months later, an unwed teen mother. Her intended school is more than three hours north of her home, so her mother will raise her newborn baby while she starts her freshman year. Valerie speaks matter-of-factly about the coming challenge, raising a new child just as hers leave the nest. Still, she is determined that both her children pursue college degrees that she never received. Maya, the mother-to-be, wonders how she'll do so far away from home and her baby. Yet in the next breath, she explains how college will be the best for her and her child. Their future success rests upon her. I've come to their home as part of my campaign for governor, so I asked Valerie what she expects of someone like me. What can I do to help make lives like hers better? In her soft voice, she replies, she just wants options for financial aid for her children. They will succeed, she says, if they can afford to stay in school. As I look around the modest home passed down through the generations, I understand both the pride and the desperation tangled in her response. She got them through and has given them the tools to carve out better lives for themselves. We chat more about the worries she's lived with all those years, our discussion turning to the crime and poverty in their neighborhood. Then I ask Valerie what she wants. At first, all I get in response is a quizzical look. That suggests I need to reconsider my bid for higher office. I repeat, what do you want for you? What secret dream do you have for yourself? Her confused expression turns to one of surprise. I don't know, she tells me. I've been a cashier at the Piggly Wiggly for 20 years. You must want something, I probe, something you'd like to do for you. A daycare, she admits quietly. I'd like to start a daycare center for unwed mothers like my daughter, so more girls can finish school and pursue their dreams. But that ambition is beyond her. Her body language, her tone of voice, her averted gaze speak louder than her words. I press her, but she demurs with a smile. Let's just see what happens if you win the governor's job, she says. Valerie's house in South Georgia is not too different from the squat red brick house where I grew up on South Street in Gulfport, Mississippi. An oak tree grew in our front yard, shadowing the front sidewalk, forbidding grass to grow beneath its shade. Pink azaleas bloomed each spring from bushes that flanked the front door. 
Our rented house and the other set close by teemed with children, all black, all working class. We played in our postage-stamped yards, make-believing the fantastical. Superhero exploits, cops and robbers. As we got older, we'd talk about moving to New Orleans or living in one of the mansions along the beachfront that lay less than five miles away, across the railroad tracks that ran in between our neighborhood and the more wealthy environs. We dreamed of more, while our parents' lives centered around survival and making it from paycheck to paycheck. Instinctively, we understood that more had to be possible, even if we didn't know what to do to get there. These imaginings, these desires, are the roots of ambition. As adults, like Valerie, we tend to edit our desires until they fit our construction of who we're supposed to become. In such a world, I wouldn't dare dream of running for higher office, for mayor, or governor, or president. At least for now, Valerie sees herself retiring in 20 more years from Piggly Wiggly as a cashier, rather than as a small business owner who helps the community raise its children. From our brief meeting, I could see she had the fire, albeit of a low burn, of a minority leader. She had ambition, she had vision, but she didn't have the faith, and understandably so. Whether we come from working class neighborhoods or grow up comfortably middle class, minorities rarely come of age explicitly thinking about what we want and how to get it. People already in power almost never have to think about whether they belong in the room, much less if they would be listened to once outside. These men, and they are usually men and typically white, do not have to grapple with low expectations based on gender or race or class. Ambition for them begins with reminiscences of old times and older friendships or newer alliances. The ends have already been decided. Only the means are to be discussed. Most potential minority leaders feel the same lack of faith Valerie had, at least at some point in their evolution. We may not know how to get the first job, let alone make it to the big chair. We don't know how to take the leap from accepting our fates to actually changing them, and not just a little, but radically. Then there are those who simply don't know what they want. The drive to achieve burns inside, often without a clear target. We want to be something, but what that is remains hazy. Often we cannot articulate our goals because they lie just beyond the reach of who we're supposed to be. Ambition scale is irrelevant. What holds us back is not scope, it's fear. And because we don't know what to call our dreams, don't know how to make them happen, or are pretty sure we'll be disappointed, we just stand still. But becoming a minority leader demands that we embrace ambition as our due. Stacey Abrams. Dave in Tacoma, Washington, listening on KBCS. Hey, Dave, what's up? Yes, sir. Well, actually, Stillicombe, Washington. How are okay. you doing there, Tom? Good. Enjoy your show. You know, the articles of impeachment, articles is a plural. So far, we've been hearing a lot about Ukraine, which is not really the strongest thing, not the worst crime he's done. I mean, God, don't get me started, but toxic appointments to agencies by Trump of people that are up total opponents of those agencies. Right. Betsy DeVos. But he's, he's not the first person to do that. Reagan did that, too. Yeah. And so did George and, W. Bush. So this is abandonment of the Kurds, our staunch allies against That's ISIS. something that I think should be impeachable. And, and particularly, yes. it, you know, the more it's looking more and more like it may well be that Jared Kushner gave the green light to Mohammed bin Salman, to Mr. Bonesaw, MBS, the, you know, the dictator of Saudi Arabia, to abduct and murder Jamal Khashoggi. And that the Turks, that Erdogan, Turkey, has the tape of that call and that he's using it to blackmail Trump and that he called sure. in that blackmail. And sure enough, Trump had some senators come and sit in the meeting. Lindsey Graham was one of them. And uh, Lindsey Graham voted to say, no, we're not going to have a resolution saying that we recognize the genocide of Armenian people by the, by the Turks back in 1918 or whenever it was. Amen. Amen to that. Plus all the, you know, to put it politely, crotch grabbing and paying off Stormy Daniels and all that. Yep. If this would have been a Democrat, they would have been throwing the book at us. I think we oh, should throw the day book one. Mr. Trump. Yep. Thank you. Have a good day. You're welcome. Thank you, Dave. I, I agree. Okay. I really I really think that we should be throwing a book at him. Jim in Denver, Colorado. Hey, Jim, what's on your mind? Uh, hi, Tom. We're dealing with a man who is a genius at branding, imaging, positioning, and stuff. Yes. And I think that the Democrats, the liberals, need to really focus on the imaging, the branding of kindness or something of that ilk. Back in, in 2016, I made a list of things that I would lo want for my leader, including uh, compassionate, happy, smart, humble, flexible, uh, mm -hmm. uh, Bernie fit, all of these categories, that kind of thing. 
And I think that basically Americans are kind people. We have a level of kindness. And rather than fight this man on his level, let's develop our own level of branding, of positioning, of, for instance, with health care, immigration, economic equality, racism. If we started branding, we are being the kind, we're kind people. We're the kind, we're, we want to... Jim, I like that. We have, to, we have to do it in the context of this will keep you safe. This will make you safe. Having health care for all, Medicare for all, for example. There have now been five cases diagnosed in China of pneumonic, pneumonic plague. This is the old-fashioned plague that killed half of Europe in the 1300s. That plague, which was transmitted in Europe by, by uh, the fleas that were on rats, that plague is now airborne. It's like the flu. And there are two cases in Beijing right now. They, they, the, the Chinese government is just freaked out about this. And we're the only advanced country in the world that doesn't have a national health care system that therefore can't easily deal with something like an outbreak of pneumonic plague. It can be treated with antibiotics. Um, you know. Underlying all that is the heart is a is an emotion uh trump has 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 captured an emotion and we need an emotional kind of thing uh safety may may or may not be an emotion or not but But the emotion that he's captured is fear and hate largely hate and that's based in fear and the only way you can counter fear is to make someone feel safe Rather than fight him on his level, on, with his meanness and his beating down, beating, 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 we need to develop something that has more heart to it. Yeah, and I, I think, think that's what Nancy Pelosi is doing. She's saying, you know, we're trying to do, we're trying to do good stuff with legislation. We're trying to clean up, you know, we're trying to get some of these dangerous guns out of circulation. We're trying to, we're trying to get everybody health care so that everybody has good, you know, safe protection for health care. We're trying to expand education. We're trying to give young people an opportunity to go to college, you know, without ending up so far in debt that they can't get married or buy a house for 15 or 20 years. I I get your point, and I agree with it. I just don't think that saying we're Mr. Rogers is going to do it. It's going to have to be a little more sophisticated than that, but it's a good place to start. Breaking news. I finally found a topic everyone can agree on. No matter what party you support, the ideas you believe in, or opinions you may have, we can all agree on the fact that aging stinks. Under eye bags, fine lines, wrinkles, crow's feet, no one can escape it. Luckily, I found just the product to help. It's called Plexiderm Rapid Reduction Serum, a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates all your key signs of aging. And the best part is it works in minutes. Now that's newsworthy. No bias here. Plexiderm works. And with all the holiday parties coming up, There's no invasive surgeries, no complication, and the best part is no one has to know that you're wearing it. It's remarkable. You'll look just like you, only years younger. Go to triplexiderm.com and use my code TOM, T-H-O-M, for 50% off plus an additional $10 off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code TOM, T-H-O-M. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit triplexiderm.com today and use the code TOM at checkout, T-H-O-M. That's triplexiderm.com, code TOM. Jonathan in Athens, Tennessee. Hey, Jonathan, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, uh, thanks for having me. Um... I kind of think he will be impeached from the Congress, but I kind of had this bold prediction that he will resign and either be forced to resign or on his own just because of all the damning statements coming out and so yeah. like that. Uh, yeah, when I was listening to NPR I, this morning, uh, praising, do doing think? a special praising Mike Pence, huh? it occurred to me, you know, maybe, maybe they know something I don't. I mean, or maybe they're anticipating that Trump will resign and he'll cut a deal with Mike Pence like Nixon did with Jerry Ford. You pardon me and my crime family and I'll go quietly into that good night. And I think, uh, Jonathan, you may be onto something. We'll see. I mean, you know, time will tell. Thanks a lot for the call. Christian in San Antonio, Texas. Hey, Christian, what's up? How you doing, Tom? Good. Tom, the most greatest part that most people miss is that the Ukrainian president knew exactly what was going on. Yes. When you call somebody, you say, are you doing an investigation? If you didn't know what was going on, wouldn't you say, what investigation? Yep. Yep. He knew exactly what was going on. And so for these people to, to pretend that this guy is, you know, he's an angel and 
he was just listening and he didn't know what the president was you're talking talk, about. You're talking about the president of Ukraine, uh, Zelensky? Yeah, I, I, I think he's, I don't think he's before. corrupt. I think he's terrified. I think, you know, his, his country has been invaded by, a, by a, you know, one of the superpowers and is occupied. He's had 14,000 of his own people killed in a literal hot war. And the United States withheld aid for, for four or five months. And, you know, that would be enough to flip anybody out. Uh, you know, but, but I, I agree with you. I, you know, he clearly knew what was going on. Uh, thanks a lot for the call. Ken in Lafayette, Colorado. Hey, Ken, what's on your mind? Morning, Tom. Hey. A uh, question regarding the Steele dossier. Right. Some clarification that I'm assuming you'd know. I've been having a Twitter conversation. So what is the history, if you will? Who? You know, there should be, I'm, surpri- I'm, I'm guessing that there's a Wikipedia page for this, but the Steele dossier started out, in fact, the entire investigation started out as uh, it was funded by one of the Republican campaigns and a newspaper, I believe it was the Washington Examiner, which is a, a right-wing free newspaper in Washington, D.C. that's owned by some you know, wealthy guy. And I think it was the Marco Rubio campaign. I've got to look this up because this comes up you know, frequently on TV. And then when whichever candidate it was, when they clearly were not going to win the presidency, when they dropped out of the primary, then that company, which had already dug up some dirt on Trump, uh, shopped that dirt to the DNC and or to the Clinton campaign. I'm not sure which at, at which point they said, sure, we'll pick this up from you and run with it. So, A, it wasn't the Steele dossier that initiated the FBI investigation. It was it was the ambassador from Australia calling the FBI himself and saying that uh, George Papadopoulos told me that the Trump campaign has the information, has the, you know, has the the. Uh, Hillary Clinton has a lot of dirt on Hillary Clinton that they're going to be releasing. That's what started the FBI investigation. And nobody has really challenged that. So the Republicans lie through their teeth when they say the Steele dossier started it. And secondly, the Steele dossier initially was a Republican investigation. And third, the Steele dossier was not a foreign country. There was a foreign person involved, but it was not a foreign country that was being corrupted. John in St. Louis, uh, Missouri. Hey, John, what's up? Hey, Tom. I got two things for you that I want you to pretty much answer for me. One is the president's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, acting on orders of the president, set up a shadow government deal in Ukraine. He is not part of the executive branch. He is just a private attorney, a private citizen. Correct. Uh, he's ignoring a subpoena, federal subpoena by the government, and he should be arrested immediately. And he even knows that. Uh, he even admitted that, you know, hey, if I am arrested, they're all going down with me because I have all the paperwork. Right. He said, I have insurance. Yep. Yeah. And so my thing is, is that why haven't we, why haven't we arrested him immediately? Why haven't we, you know. Oh, there's a simple answer to that, John. There's a, there's a simple answer to that question. For the federal government to arrest somebody, you have to have an arrest warrant, and that warrant has to be executed by a member of the federal police services, whether it's the FBI or the civil or the uh, excuse me or the Secret Service or you know whatever one of the agencies that is that is uh, empowered to arrest people. All of those agencies work for a guy named Bill Barr, and Bill Barr will not enforce subpoenas. Okay, that's the bottom line. Um, Right. And my other question is, is how do you feel about Deutsche Bank? They're saying that they're going to go bank, you know, totally bankrupt yeah. because they're over leverage. And if they go, that means there's a lot of other banks probably going to go, too. We're going to have another. It could be uh, like Lehman Brothers. It could be a domino, you know, the first domino that falls that causes a whole bunch of others. On the other hand, it might be the ultimate cover up. I mean, you know, uh, keep in mind, Anthony Kennedy's son. Uh, the uh, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy, who stepped down to provide a space for Brett Kavanaugh, his son worked at Deutsche Bank in charge of international real estate lending and signed off on Donald Trump's loans. So, you know, it's possible that Trump was even blackmailing Anthony Kennedy like he tried to blackmail Zelensky or bribed him, as the case may be, because Kennedy was in great, he's in fine fettle. You know, he's, he, didn't, he didn't retire because he was too old or unhealthy or anything. But I agree with you. I think that we need to be focusing more on Giuliani and more on the crimes of this administration. Um, thanks a lot for the call, John. Dave in uh, Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Hey, Dave, what's up? Hey, Tom. I mentioned to your screener that uh, about the, the story about a month or so old now, but VA Secretary, then VA Secretary David Shulkin, 
had decided to add on three more health conditions to the list of diseases eligible for Agent Orange benefits. But White House officials and OMB director and uh, slash acting chief of staff, McMulvaney, they have been uh, dragging their feet and impeding the enactment. And the three diseases Shokin had decided to add were bladder cancer, Parkinson's-like symptoms, and hypothyroidism. Right. And they claim that it's estimated that there's about 83,000 veterans afflicted with at least one of the three proposed presumptive conditions. Right. And Trump is trying to save money by not, not servicing right. veterans so that he can give that money to his buddies in giant tax cuts for and, billionaires. And also, hundreds of the thousands of Vietnam veterans also suffer from hypertension or high blood pressure. Right. And if, if that were added to the list of 14 conditions, it has a potential cost VA billions in care. Right. To go with what you had right. just mentioned. Because that's also and, one of the known consequences of exposure to Agent Orange. Yeah. And uh, five senators wrote Mulvaney on October 31st asking him to stop blocking the decision of those, those three conditions with the hypertension and the five senators were led off by John Tester, Democrat of Montana, Maisie Hirano of Hawaii, Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut, Sherrod Brown of Ohio, and Bernie Sanders, Independent, who votes right. with the Democrats. So, right. so for all of them, you know that you know Trump is thinking that you know he claims to be doing so much for the veterans. I don't know about that, you know. Yeah, and Bernie used to be chairman of the uh, Veterans Affairs Committee in the United States Senate. And, yeah. uh, you know, he, he talked about that a lot on this program. In fact, we did a couple of shows where he asked only veterans to call in and only talk about their experience of the VA because he wanted to get a handle on what was going on, um, which is, you know, pretty, pretty consequential stuff. Dave, thanks for bringing yeah, that you up. And, you and the listeners would find that a, a very interesting because that kind of went under the wire. I read that in Military Times. Yeah, and it's worth, and it's worth mentioning if you're talking to, your, to, to, your, to the office of, presumably, your United States Senator, member of the House of Representatives, uh, because the VA has been, is being used by Trump, and, and our veterans, for that matter, are being used by Trump as political pawns. And, and he's trying to milk the VA to, like I said, to, to have more money available for his wall and for his tax cuts for his billionaire buddies. Dave, thanks for the call. It's great to hear from you. Gary in Minneapolis. Hey, Gary, what's up? Yes, Tom. How are you today? I am great, but I'll get better, Gary. How about you? Good. I had the same thing. You know, when you talk about Trump and his, you know, lack of intelligence, and then at the same time, you talk about how he's manipulated, like how he's doing with the military, like dividing the the uh, enlisted men from the officers. Right. I don't. I, I don't think that's intelligence. I think that's cunning. Well, I think there's somebody be there's somebody behind him, somebody in the, you know behind the curtains or a group of people that are actually advising him. Because I don't think he's got the moxie to figure this kind of stuff out. I think that he's getting most of his advice right now, Gary, from Fox News, which means that it's Rupert Murdoch who's advising him directly or indirectly, rather. Um, uh, and we know that Sean Hannity talks to him almost every night on the telephone. Well, maybe that's who it is. But I think yeah. it's somebody that we don't even know about yeah. is my suspicion. Well, and, and the bottom line is that, you know, the, the interests that whoever it is is representing, and I'm guessing that it's more than one person, the, the interests mm -hmm. that they're representing are the interests of the billionaire class in the yes. United States. I mean, you know, it's all about, at the end of the day, you know, the Republican Party has been since the 1870s basically all about sticking it to working people. And, you know, Reagan put that on steroids, you know, busting unions and everything else, and now Trump is, is uh, trying to, you know, do the final takedown of average working people, and and uh, it it uh, it's very uh, disheartening to see how successful he's doing. He is at doing that, and then average working people still supporting him because he's doing his you know rah uh, uh, rah stuff, and and uh, it's 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 a real tragedy for this country. I think. Gary, thanks for the call. Jim in Glen Goldendale, Washington. Hey, Jim, what's up? Hey, and a good morning, Mr. Hartman. Hey. Mr. Herman, I'm thank you for taking my phone call. It's been uh, it, it, this is an experience for me. I'm turning off my my TV uh, button. Yeah. Uh, we we talked earlier uh, knowing issues, and my, my my thing on knowing issues is that if I only listen to Fox, I only get their issue. 
But I have to say, uh, that's why I'm listening to you today, to get a full or to get another side of the coin. But what's interesting here is that that's not, uh, Trump's uh, whatever he has done in the last three years is not spoke of positively at all. And I just question is, even though we may not like him, uh, has he not done positive things for the country? I think one thing that he has done that I have uh, praised him on the air for on numerous occasions okay. is raise the issue of trade. This, this, the, you know, these trade deals, the, this, this weird Republican idea that, that Reagan started working out that our trade policies should be driven of, by, and for the interests of big corporations and not by, of, by, and for the interests of American workers, which they had been prior to the 1980s. And then George Herbert Walker Bush worked out the first of those trade deals. But I got to move along, but thank you for the call. Appreciate it. Becky in Lulano, Texas. I just saw something in the Austin Statesman newspaper, you know, mm -hmm. Austin, Texas, and it said that Rick Perry told Donald Trump that he was the chosen one. So Donald Trump thinks he is chosen right. by God. Yeah, and Rick Perry and actually said that in a, either in a speech or in, a, in, a, in an interview. I've seen the headline. I haven't read the yeah. article. Yeah. yeah, I think it was on Fox News, and I don't, uh, I sense. just can't yeah. watch the channel. Yeah. But isn't that like leading to being a tyrant, to tyranny of some sort? It seems like all the tyrants have always been chosen by God. There is a long history of people with nefarious motives using religion to accomplish them or using politics to accomplish them. And when you combine the two, it's, uh -huh. it's highly combustible, which is why of the many things that Madison and Jefferson agreed on, probably at the top of the list, was that there should be a wall of separation, which was uh, Madison's phrase, between church and state. And, uh, Absolutely. you know, and in two different places in the Constitution, they wrote that in. They said that there should be no religious test for office and uh, in the, the body of the Constitution itself. And then in the First Amendment, they said that uh, government should be basically independent of religion and religion should be independent of government. Now, those lines have always been blurred or have largely always been blurred. It really started in the 1820s, 1830s, where the, the religious, uh, what we would today call the religious right, there was a massive uh, national religious revival in the in the late 1820s, early 1830s, that led to religion becoming part of American politics. That kind of went away with the Civil War. You know, it came back again in the 1880s, 1890s. There was another one of these revivals. There was another one of these revivals in the 1970s that some attributed to the uh, Roe v. Wade decision. You know, and, and religious opportunists seen seen a way to exploit that. But this is the Roy Moore thing. This is the Rick Perry. You know, Rick Perry has always pushed this. George W. Bush, his job with the Reagan administration was to be the outreach mm -hmm. guy to the evangelical community, and partic uh -huh. particularly when uh, for Reagan's reelection in in uh, 1984. It was George W. Bush who, was, who literally led that cause to bring conservative fundamentalist Christians into the Republican Party. He did a very good job of it. So, uh, yeah, yeah, that's where we're at. What do we do about it, Becky? I don't know. I mean, how do you convince an insane <laughs> maniac that really he wasn't chosen by God? Well, you know, that's, he, a, that's a great question, and it's a big challenge. I mean... The whole chosen by God thing is, is uh, whew, it's a tough one. I, I, you know, I, it is. And isn't it? And I, don't think, I don't know. I don't think Trump even believes in God, frankly. Uh, so I don't think that he uh, believes I that he's chosen. But I think he's perfectly willing good, to use it. It's but, a good thing to use. But I think Pence yeah. believes it. And I think Pence believes that, that Trump is King Cyrus. And, and that story is being told across the evangelical community. I think they're believing it. Becky, I got to run. Thanks for the call. This is the Tom Hartman Program. For our book club today, we're reading from David Blight's book, Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. This is from the introduction. In his speech at the dedication of the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C., September 24, 2016, President Barack Obama delivered what he termed a, quote, clear-eyed view 
of a tragic and triumphant history of black Americans in the United States. He spoke of a history that is central to the larger American story, one that is both contradictory and extraordinary. He likened the African-American experience to the infinite depths of Shakespeare and scripture. The, quote, embrace of truth as best we can know it, said the president, is, quote, where real patriotism lies. Naming some of the major pivots of the country's past, Obama wrapped up his central theme in a remarkable sentence about the Civil War era. Quote, we've buttoned up our Union blues to join the fight for our freedom. We've railed against injustice for decade upon decade, a lifetime of struggle and progress and enlightenment that we see etched in Frederick Douglass's mighty Leonine gaze. End quote. How Americans react to Douglass's gaze, indeed how we gaze back at his visage, and more important, how we read him, appropriate him, or engage his legacies, informs how we use our past to determine who we are. Douglass's life and writing emerged from nearly the full scope of the 19th century, representative of the best and the worst in the American spirit. Douglass constantly probed the ironies of America's contradictions over slavery and race. Few Americans use Shakespeare and the Bible to comprehend his story and that of his people as much as Douglass. And there may be no better example of an American radical patriot than the slave who became a lyrical prophet of freedom, natural rights, and human equality. Obama channeled Douglass in his dedication speech, knowingly or not, so do many people today. Born Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey, a slave, in Talbot County, Maryland, in February 1818, the future Frederick Douglass was the son of Harriet Bailey, one of five daughters of Betsy Bailey, and with some likelihood his mother's white owner. He saw his mother for the last time in 1825, though he hardly knew her. She died the following year. Douglass lived 20 years as a slave and nearly nine years as a fugitive slave subject to recapture. From the 1840s to his death in 1895, he attained international fame as an abolitionist, editor, orator of almost unparalleled signature, and the author of three autobiographies that are classics of the genre. As a public man, he began his abolitionist career two decades before America would divide and fight a civil war over slavery that he openly welcomed. Douglas was born in a backwater of the slave society of the South, just as steamboats appeared in bays and on American rivers, and before the telegraph, the railroad, and the rotary press changed human mobility and consciousness. He died after the emergence of electric lights, the telephone, and the invention of the phonograph. The renewed orator and traveler loved and used most of these elements of modernity and technology. Douglas was the most photographed American of the 19th century, explained in this book and especially by the intrepid research of three other scholars I write upon. Although it can never really be measured, he may also have been, along with Mark Twain, the most widely traveled American public figure of his century. By the 1890s, in sheer miles and countless number of speeches, he had few rivals as a lecturer in the golden age of oratory. It is likely that more Americans heard Frederick Douglass speak than any other public figure of his time. Indeed, to see or hear Douglass became a kind of wonder of the American world. He struggled as well with the pleasures and perils of fame as much as anyone else in his century, with the possible exceptions of General Ulysses S. Grant or P.T. Barnum. Douglass's dilemma with fame was a matter of decades, not merely of moments, and fraught with racism. The orator and writer lived to see and interpret black emancipation, to work actively for women's rights long before they were achieved, to realize the civil rights triumphs and tragedies of Reconstruction, and to witness and contribute to America's economic and international expansion in the Gilded Age. He lived to the age of lynching and Jim Crow laws, when America collapsed into retreat from the real victories and revolutions in race relations that he had helped to win. He played a pivotal role in America's second founding out of the apocalypse of the Civil War, and he very much wished to see himself as a founder and defender of the Second American Republic. In one lifetime of anti-slavery, literary, and political activism, Douglas was many things, and the set of apparent paradoxes makes his story so attractive to, to biographers as well as to so many constituencies today. He was a radical thinker and a proponent of classic 19th century political liberalism. At different times, he hated and loved his country. He was a ferocious critic of the United States and all its hypocrisies, but also, after emancipation, became a government bureaucrat, a diplomat, and a voice for territorial expansion. He strongly believed in self-reliance and demanded an activist interventionist government at all levels, 
to free slaves, defeat the Confederacy, and to protect black citizens against terror and discrimination. Douglas was a serious constitutional thinker, and few Americans have ever analyzed race with more poignancy and nuance than this mostly self-taught genius with words. He was a radical editor, writer, and activist. The book Frederick Douglass by David Blight. You know, the only two presidents who were ever impeached, thus, you know, credibly accused of crimes that rose to the level of impeachment, and then those crimes were indicted in the House of Representatives with an impeachment vote and tried in the United States Senate. The only two presidents that had that happen, by coincidence, and I'm sure it's just a coincidence, are the only two presidents whose Department of Justice's Office of Legal Counsel wrote a memo saying, you can't arrest a sitting president. What he's doing is too important. He's too busy. He would never go out on the golf course, one third of his presidency. He's busy. You can't arrest him. And Trump now is claiming that not only can't you arrest him, you can't even investigate him, even if he commits murder. Anyway, we've got a video about a president who actually did get arrested for a crime and convicted of it. You can check it out over at TomHartman.com. It's one of our uh, Lister-supported videos. Check it out. Tag, you're it. Well, welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you and Leslie in Central Square, New York. Hey, Leslie, what's up? Hi, Tom. How are you doing? I'm well. Uh, what's on your mind today? The Fairness Doctrine. I mean, that's got to go back. In, that's the only thing that's going to save America. That's what saved us before. And that's where you got a free press. We don't have a free press at all today. The mainstream media is worthless. Okay? We do not have a free press. It's all regulated. Well, it's all you controlled, know? basically, I would say. Yeah. Not against all, American mostly. people. That's against the American people. It's got to be changed. I mean, we should have representatives putting that bill in in case we take over the presidency. They can automatically submit it. I mean, yeah. you might have all the corporate Democrats going against it, but you got to bring them out. You You're talking about the, the fairness doctrine, or restoring the fairness doctrine, that, that, that uh, radio and television stations actually have to carry real news, regardless of ratings, that actually informs people at least once every hour, in the case of television, you know, for a half hour every night during prime time. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I'm with you. And I, and I think that this is one of the big challenges of our time. Leslie, thank you for the call. Jane in Gadsden, Alabama. Hey, Jane, what's up? Hey, Tom. I'm thankful for you, man. Thank I don't you. know what we'd Back do without you. you. <laughs> Listen, I have two points now because of something a caller while I was on hold said. But the first one is... What he's doing with these, uh, I call them rogue military guys, because they... The war they criminals. Yes, exactly. That's even better. He's got, he's got three people who've been convicted of war crimes that he has pardoned and, and that Fox News is, or at least one weird guy on Fox News, is promoting. And I don't yeah. get where Rupert Murdoch thinks that it's a good thing for America to say to their, their young men and women in, in uniform, if you're a war criminal, don't worry, the president has your back. I, I just don't exactly. understand any upside to that. I don't either, except for Trump. And that was my question. Do you think he's maybe putting together a band of bodyguards for when he won't leave the White House? I mean, it's far-fetched, but so is he. God forbid. Um, I you know. know. I wouldn't put anything past this guy right now, Jane. My, I wouldn't my, either. My, my main sense of it is that he's trying to reach out to basically the blue-collar part of our national infrastructure. Um, he's, mm -hmm. He did the same thing with cops a year ago where he went against police management and told, you know, beat cops, go ahead and rough up uh, suspects when you arrest exactly. them. And, exactly. you know, which is, you know, patently illegal, unconstitutional and, and, and just, you know, everything else. But basically he was saying, you know, I'm with labor, not with management. And I think that that's what he's trying to say to the guys in the Army, the Navy, you know, the Marine Corps and whatnot. Um, but it's so obvious that he's not. He's not for the common man. Yeah. He doesn't care anything about the common man. Here's my second. I don't want to keep you too long. Here's my second thought. Uh, something uh, one of the callers said was about Barr, Bill Barr. Mm -hmm. we got to get rid of him. And I've been wondering for quite some time now, why has he not been impeached? 
Well, an impeachment would have to start in the House of Representatives, and you would have to have a majority of the, at least of the Democratic House members, who think that what Bill Barr has done is so egregious that it warrants impeachment. It I, is. Yeah, you know, I don't disagree with you, but I think that they're focusing on his boss instead, and they're yeah, just and I they're just tolerating him. Hard to impeach, too. Well, and I'm not sure an attorney general has ever been impeached. I mean, you know, there's been a couple of cabinet officers who were impeached over the years, but they were, it was really egregious stuff. And it was all in the first 50 years or so of of our republic, as I recall. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but I, I, you know, I think the the cancer here is not Bill Barr. The cancer is in the White House. And and if nothing else, we need to address that in the 2020 election. Jane, thank you for the call. It's nice to hear from you. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.